Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. As usual, I am your host. And you all, the day that this episode goes live is exactly one year from the day the mini introduction episode went live. I can't believe it's been a whole year. Thank you all so much for listening and interacting. It has been a life-changing year for me in so many ways, but I just, this podcast has really been a very bright light in my life. So thank you to all of you. And I'm so grateful to all of the amazing women who have given their time to be on the pod. I've gained so much through their participation and some of them have become extremely close friends of mine and I just love them all. Uh, Do you want to celebrate our one year with us? I bet you do. Reach out on social media um, at LTPF pod on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. And tell us what episode has been your favorite so far and why. And then head to your podcatcher of choice and rate and review the pod. Um, That would be an amazing birthday gift for us if you all did that. So it seems only fitting that on this one year anniversary, which I'm going to celebrate for like two weeks, just so you all know. (laughs) Um, But it seems only fitting that I have this guest this week, one of the most powerful women in our industry. Jean Afterman has been with the New York Yankees for 17 years and is their assistant general manager. She's only the third female assistant general manager in MLB history. There has not been a single female general manager in Major League Baseball. Her background is far from what one would think is typical for that role. I mean, for one, she didn't play baseball. But also, she has a degree in history of art had an acting career, was involved in the National Organic Standards Board, and is a lawyer. One thing is for sure, she's anything but typical. Please enjoy this interview with the legendary Jean Afterman. Hello, Jean Afterman. Hello there. How are you? Oh, I'm so excited to be talking to you right now. Oh, good. I'm excited to be talking to you. <laughs> so with you. I when, mean, with you. When, when I was thinking about starting this podcast and, like, you know, my wish list women, um, you were in the top 10 without a question. Wow. Yeah. Wow, thank you. Like, Thank you. That's really nice to hear. Without a question. Um, and so when I saw that you were speaking at Sports Lawyers Association, I was like, well, of course I'm going to that panel. Um, and I'm just so thrilled that we connected and, and we're able to make this happen. And I feel like I'm fangirling. And yeah, that's that. You're not. I, I can <laughs> fangirl right back at you because I, you know, the Google's such a wonderful thing. So after we met at the panel, of course, I Googled you and, and, and I, I love what you're doing. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I, I, uh, I, I think it's wonderful to be, you know, it's also a fantastic medium. People aren't, um, you know, in the, in the grand old days of radio, <laughs> people listen to things. And I, I think that when you do a, a podcast, um, I, I, I hope that people are, are listening very carefully. We don't, uh, you know, listening is not something that, that we're all accustomed to really doing 
these days. Um, not that there's anything with, with you know, I'm, I'm not, not saying using your eyes is a bad thing, but, but I just think that, that, that truly listening is a lost art. So um, I, I, I really love these. I think they're fantastic. I, you know, I agree on the listening front. I think that there are so many, uh, I don't want to call them silly, but there are issues in sport right now that if people would just sit and listen to the other side, it would resolve those issues without a question. But because people aren't listening past the headline, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think it, these issues continuously go round and round in a circle. I, I agree. I think that a lot of times, though, I think you have to want to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes if you're just waiting until somebody stops talking so that you can say whatever it is you wanted to say and you're not really listening to them at all, I think that's, you know, that's sort of an epidemic these days um, uh, in our country. Um, but I, I do think that that um, but I always held this idea. I started out as a player agent. Um, now I've been with the Yankees for 17 years, and I, I really felt that um, players and and clubs are really we're on the same side. I mean, we're we really have interests in common, um, so we shouldn't be as adverse to each other as as we sometimes are. We all want to, you know, we all want what's fair. Um, you know, we we want to put a great put on a great game, put a great product out there. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that if we, if, if both sides in any sport actually sat down and, and you're right, listened, waited until they fully understood what the other side was saying and then responded, not just spoke, um, I think it would, I think we'd find ourselves in a much different position. Do you think that such listening would maybe resolve the eons long uh rivalry of red sox and yankees well um i don't (laughs) says the girl from massachusetts (laughs) (laughs) i will tell you it's um i have very good relationships with the um i like to think i have very good relationships with the um with the folks in the front office of the red sox um i I like them i respect them I, i hope they like and respect me and we you know, we do work together on some things, um, and it's, I, I don't know that that um, rivalry, um, I think the rivalry exists um, with the fans, but I don't know. Uh, it certainly seemed um, a lot more um, vivid and vitriolic um, when I first started at the Yankees. Now, I grew up mm-hmm. in San Francisco, so the right. rivalry for me was always the Dodgers, Giants versus the Dodgers. So coming to the East Coast, and um, working for the Yankees, um, I just thought, oh, this 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 little rivalry between the Yankees <laughs> and the Red Sox is nothing compared to what the way we feel about the Dodgers in San Francisco. So, I think it's I think the rivalry is a is a it's a great thing. It's a it's a wonderful thing for um, for fans, um, and it's certainly you know it's 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 a lot of bread and circus. Um, yeah, but that has a place. Yeah, bread and, for sure. Bread and circus have a place for sure i've been threatened um with my life if i ever go work for the yankees um to which i have told said friends you better hope (laughs) i get a job with the yankees (laughs) one of these years because that means i'm doing really well (laughs) 
I'll tell you what I um I uh my my family I grew up as a San Francisco Giants fan. My family are all San Francisco Giants fans and my my first big client was um Hideo Nomo who was mm-hmm. a legendary Dodger and um he made his debut at Candlestick Park in San Francisco and I brought my whole family. And then when he um, took the field, I, I stood and and um, applauded. And my mother grabbed my elbow and hissed at me, "Sit down! You're embarrassing us." <laughs> so that was that's the that's the Dodger uh, San Francisco rivalry, yeah. right there. Split families apart. Well, and then with the Patriots, you know, in if we're talking football, it doesn't matter oh. who they're playing. Like you, it's just not allowed to like that other team. And <laughs> so. Um, when my organization had a home game with them, I mean, I was getting text messages left and right. Who are you rooting for? I'm like, one team pays me. That's the team that I'm rooting for. That's right. I mean, at the the end of the day, I'm literally bleeding red and pewter. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what do you think here, people? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that also, um, it is, you know, the, the thing about working for a sports team is that um, ultimately it's, it's, it's a job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, uh, m- my view also when, when I, I talk to people about, you know, submitting resumes and, and contacting clubs, for me, um, I wouldn't, somebody that, that says to me the first thing out of their mouth is, I'm, a, I'm the biggest Yankee fan um, in the history of the world, that's not somebody that I'm going to be interested in hiring. Right. I think that when you when you work for any organization, when you work for any company or 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 sports organization, you have to keep a cool head, you have to be objective, and you have a job to do. And if you're so emotionally overwrought about mm-hmm. the standings, um, and you live and die on every game, and it's a long freaking season, but if you live and die on every game, you just won't be able to to do the best job for the organization that you can possibly do. Right. And, and I might fangirl over people like you, um, Ah. but it's far different than having somebody who works for your organization and is, you know, going crazy over your players because you don't want that either. I mean, no, and there has to be that, that emotional distance in order to be objective with anything that's going to go on at the organization. Right. I mean, you can you can imagine in any. It, I mean, there are analogies in other businesses, particularly in the entertainment industry, because sports is an entertainment. But you do need to keep a very um, cool head and a very clear eye. Um, my dad, I, when I worked at um, in the dim dark past, I worked at Paramount Pictures, and my dad, um, who was a psychoanalyst, my dad always said uh, it's very difficult to be the unglamorous job in a glamorous industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of people in sports sometimes suffer from that. So, um, you know, there's value in, in everything that, that, that you do in a, in a sports organization, um, particularly in, in my department, you know, in the baseball operations department, there's, um, everybody has tremendous value and you may not see it on the field. You won't see it in the dugout. You won't see it in the newspapers and you won't see it, um, you know, on the scoreboard, but there's tremendous value. You're the unglamorous job in a glamorous industry. Um, and so it's important to recognize, though, you, you have to have a very great sense of your own value and see how you are participating in, in, in the whole. I yeah. found it a little bit like Star Trek Next Generation, the Borg, but you have to, you have to <laughs> participate, see that you're 
you're a part of the board. Yeah. But, um, I mean, so for like the example with me is, you know, when, um, when we have our first home game and I walk into the stadium and I can point to pretty much every sign and be like, I did that contract. I helped yeah. with that, you know, and, and those are things that like help connect you back to it. Right. Yeah. And like I was part because I helped with this. Now I may, I'm not going to get recognized for it, but knowing by your, by your peers, um, you'll, you'll be recognized. Sure. You know, you'll, you'll have a, um, a place in the, in the pantheon. I, I call what I do the mundane business of baseball. <laughs> um, and the, the mundane business of baseball before they, before they take the field, you know, there is so much mundane business mm-hmm. that goes on kind of before, during, and after that that is not a part of the, and shouldn't be, you know, a part of, um, a, a part of what the public sees. Like when you go to the movies, you don't want to see the gaffer tape. Right. You don't want to, you don't want to know, you know, what lens they used on the camera. You just want to enjoy the, the movie. And in the same way that, that, although nowadays there are people who are just thrilled with mm-hmm. every little teeny tiny detail. Um, but I don't think they'd be interested. What I do is not, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be interested in what I do. I like to think they wouldn't be interested in what I do. Oh, I don't know about that. One of these days there might be a movie about you, Kim or Eileen. You never know. Well, you never know. We'll, uh, I, I always think we'll, you know, volume one, volume two, volume three, volume four. Yeah. I hope that there are uh, hope there are a lot of volumes. Hope we're just the first wave. It's it, it is a little discouraging to me that um, that you know we haven't uh, there doesn't seem to be you know a um, a lot of women being elevated um, in um, in at least in in baseball. There is um, a, a good friend. A good friend, Raquel Ferreira, um, at the Red Sox, um, she is a vice president in the baseball operations department, and she's fantastic. She does an amazing job. And when she got the VP job, I, I uh, emailed her, welcome to the Brotherhood. <laughs> and, um, and so whenever we speak to each other, it's always a hello, brother, or dear brother, um, because we're, it's still, we don't see that, that a lot of women are, are moving into positions of of authority. And, you know, maybe um, part of it may be that, that qualified women don't know that those positions um, are available. And part of it is that it's still a man's world and mm-hmm. every part of it is still a man's world. And, and we need to work harder to make sure that, you know, it's, it's a, a woman and a man's world. Um, so, Right. I mean, I think our industry is so much one of who you know. And if all you know are men, then, you know, who have had, you know, that you've worked with, then you're going to, it's going to be hard to, you know, you have to make a conscious effort and you have to actually proactively make an effort to pull women in. and. Um, I've, I've kind of been, I've been lucky in the men that I've worked with, um, Don Nomura, um, who, uh, was the player agent that I worked with. He and I, um, worked together. Um, uh, and that's how I actually got into baseball was with Don and, um, and Brian Cashman, uh, my general manager is, I think 
the only general manager in all of professional sports who's hired not one but two female assistant GMs, Kim Ang, my predecessor, uh, and me. So I think that that there are there are um, there are men in our industry who are gender blind mm-hmm. and and are looking for qualified people, and it doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman. And you're right, though. I think a lot of it is that um, is that uh, you know the guys started out together as interns in a baseball operations department, and they've kind of moved up through various organizations, and they all know each other. Um, in in baseball, um, what the um, what the commissioner established was the um, diversity pipeline. Um, I'm on his diversity pipeline committee, and you know there was a generalized thought that that um, that I, personally, I don't think the the Selig, what was called the Selig rule. I think you have the is that the Rooney, Rooney rule. rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Selig rule never works because all you're doing is is um, is checking uh, embarrassing. A box. Checking a box and 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 actually embarrassing qualified people. So qualified people will go for jobs that they're never going to get, um, but somebody's checked a box. So what you have to do is you have to develop a pipeline of people that are going to be uh, qualified and exposed to all different organizations. Um, because you're right, we're a little village. We tend to hire from within. Mm-hmm. So you used to work for the Red Sox. Well, that's, you know. I'm going to look at that resume before I look at somebody outside my industry. Um, and so the idea is that to develop this pipeline, get, get people like almost right out of college and put them in a pipeline so that, so that they can be, um, you know, over the years, uh, they'll develop their own network. Um, they'll be, um, they'll move up in organizations and then laterally or, or, Make a you know make a make either a lateral move to an organization or be hired in a in a higher position, um, and in that way you pretty much create a talent pool, and it's not just scattershot, and it's not checking a box. Right. So, and, and you and I talked a, um, really briefly at SLA about how you know with this pipeline, I think the comment that I made was you know we we need people at high school and college levels so that they are going up just like we need women and, and people of color at um, high schools and colleges and going up through the same ranks. Um, So that when the first, you know, woman general manager is hired, she can be successful and it isn't so much weight on her shoulders because there are people behind her ready, you know, it's not like there's this huge expanse of, um, wasteland basically of no other woman in the near future. Right. And that's what I think has happened a lot when we've seen this in football is that, you know, when Jen Walter went in as the first, um, female coach in the NFL, even if it was, you know, just an internship during training camp, you know, there was so much pressure on her that, and there, there weren't any, there wasn't anyone near her as like, okay, next in line. So she, she had so much pressure on her to be perfect at it. And I fear that at times it may have either been too much or, you know, that's got to change the experience for her too. Right. I mean, there'll be such heightened scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be such heightened scrutiny on, on her, every little thing that, 
agency may do right or wrong. So the right is going to be, you know, possibly um, even greater than it is, and the wrong is going to be disaster, catastrophe, end of the world, and it's because she's a woman. Right, as opposed to it's actually something that happens all the time with new people in this role. (laughs) Right, right. Or she didn't have enough of of the, the training, and she was, you know, thrown into it uh, almost as a, I don't want to say as a, a, a PR thing, because I don't think with Jen's situation, I don't think that was the case, but she hadn't coached in college. She hadn't, you know, she had, she had coached a men's professional team in another league for one year. Um, and, you know, maybe there was some more training that could have been helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I, I think that, that you have to have, it, it's a little bit, um, I mean, truth be told, in not everybody, I wouldn't say that everybody that gets a job in baseball is fully, male or female, is fully qualified for it because there's nothing like experience. And I think that's what you're talking about. Right. You have to have a lot of people with similar experience who um, are going to be a talent pool that, that people can choose from. And you also can't be the only one. It's really hard to be the only one. Um, uh, representing Japanese players, um, that primarily we represented Japanese players, and, and um, the isolation that um, a player feels coming over here from Japan where you don't have other people in your clubhouse who speak Japanese. You have your one interpreter. Right. And since it's a team, I mean, people want to feel a part of a team. Same with the gender um, mm-hmm. issue. You know, you... you um, Men and women are very different. Uh, we, we, we're different physically, of course, but we also are very different, I think, in the way we problem solve, whether it's um, nurture or nature, I don't know, but we're, we approach issues differently, we approach problems differently, we approach individuals differently. Um, not, not one is right or wrong. I mean, right. there's not right or wrong way to do all those things, but there's just a very different way to do things, and you have to... You know, it, it can be, um, you know, lonely when you're not around your own kind. <laughs> right. I mean, in, in simple things, you know, I'll use an example of like, if you're the only woman in on the business side, you know, and everybody, all the men wear business casual and, you know, what do you wear? It's like, and it sounds silly almost. But unless you have somebody to kind of model off of and and I don't want to get into the whole like, well, you should dress how you want to dress that type of thing, because I very fully agree with some of your your style points. Um, But I do think it's important to be able to get an idea of what's acceptable. Right. Yeah. You you need you need either active mentors or 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 people that you can emulate. I mean, that's the. And I and I do think there is a people will always, uh, you know, where you they, they what they see first is is what you look like. That's and when you walk into a room, it's that's I mean that's only natural. You that's what you see first. And I I do think that that um, you know I sort of love Madeleine Albright's um, the way she uh, you know had always chosen her brooches well. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there, there was meaning to it. Yeah. <laughs> And I do think that, um, you know, I, I, I had mentioned, I think, before at some point that I think that, that you kind of, each day you have to decide what role you're going to play. And it's like, it's like a bit of theater. You have to dress for the role that you're going to play that day. Um, 
as lawyers, you have to do that all the time. If you're meeting a new client or if you're going into court, um, I don't know if I had mentioned at the, at the conference, uh, you know, I always had to wear a court. I bought myself a, what I called the court ring. Um, and um, because when I was litigating in, in uh, California for your court, uh, judges were just much more comfortable with nice married lady lawyers. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> hoping things change. But um, I went and I got myself a fantastic fake diamond ring. Nice. And, um, and I wore it whenever I went into court. And it just seemed that everybody was just a lot more comfortable with a nice married lady lawyer. Um, and, you know, that bit of play acting was, um, you know, sort of offensive. But, but you, you have to kind of adjust to the time in which you are, are working and living. And then you hope things are different later on. But I do think that, that you know, you have to, you always want to see what you, you need role models. In, in everything you do. Um, and and I, I, I even think to myself, you know, sometimes I even, I, I lot, when I first came to the Yankees, I always thought, well, what would Brian say or do? You know, would Brian be wearing a suit or would he not be wearing a suit? Um, and so I, I tried to follow early on, you know, follow his lead as to, uh, you know, how to act, how to, you know, when to back down, when to not back down. 17 years in, I sort of think I'm my own man, so to speak, but, but, I, but I still, um, you know, you, you do need to, you, such a trite phrase, but, you know, no man is an island and you, and you need, we're, we're social creatures and we need, we need a lot of, we need that interaction and we need that connection. It's important when you work to have some person that you, that you feel that you can work very closely with um, and, you know, it's important to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. Um, you can't be isolated in your work, particularly in this business. Right. You um, you mentioned playing the part uh, or dressing to play the part each day. And this kind of brings us, you know, kind of early in your life, you, um, you were an actress. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I, that's like one of my favorite things about you by the way oh <laughs> um because it, it's so unex first of all it's so unexpected um in terms of someone's background with where you're at now and it it also proves a point that i try and make over and over again on this podcast which is nobody goes the same path as anyone else i mean everybody has a different path to wherever they're at and so wherever they you know the listener is now doesn't mean that that's where they're going to be in five years. There, there's no question. I mean, I, I, when I talk to students and I try to talk to, um, you know, we were, we were speaking about high school and college students. I do try and talk, speak to high school and college students as much as I can because I sort of stand for the proposition that you, you never know where you're going to end up. I mean, working in baseball, being a lawyer in baseball, being the assistant general manager of the New York Yankees, being a player agent, Never in my wildest imagination did I ever imagine that that's what I would do, or, or did I ever want to do that? Um, and I, I sort of had many different careers before I came to baseball, and I see people in high school and college are so anxious that they don't, you know, I need to start my career right now. You know, I need, I need to know what I'm going to do right now. Mm -hmm. and, and they, they somehow feel so much pressure. Um, and, 
I mean, I, and it's not that I was, I wasn't a dilettante. I mean, I, I've been working since I was 14 and a half. I always love looking at my social security statements when they come because <laughs> it's like a little trip down memory lane. Um, so, uh, but, but, uh, and you know, it, having an education makes all the difference in, in every possible way, even though, you know, I, I worked at a frozen yogurt store and I worked at a movie, I think, uh, movie theater, the cashier at a movie theater was my first job, I think. And, but, but I, I mean, I started as an actress. I wanted to be an actress. I hope to go back to acting, actually, um, at some time before I, um, you know, before the end of my life, I hope to go back <laughs> to acting. Um, but, and, and that's what I wanted to do at the time. Um, but things changed, and I sort of recognized that I, I didn't really, um, enjoy, I had a, a certain amount of success in, the, um, in San Francisco, um, but, but then I, I didn't really, um, I, I wasn't, I didn't really have what it takes to face the um, sort of the kicks in the stomach every day. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to New York or you go to Los Angeles and, um, you know, the constant rejection, it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. And I also wanted to earn a living. So, um, right. you know, then that, you know, persuaded me to do, persuaded me that, I was like, persuade, compel, what is that? <laughs> That's, I kind of, you know, I moved into um, into a, uh, a job, um, and then I kind of find my, found myself at Paramount Pictures, and I went to law school, and I didn't even think I'd be in baseball when I came out of law school, um, and my my first year summer um, job uh, at law school was going back to the theater, um, and instead of working at a law firm, I, I uh, did a, a summer of Shakespeare. Um, uh, which I wouldn't have given up for the world. It probably wasn't um, the best thing for my legal career. <laughs> but, oh, gee, I don't I know. It, it seems to world. have worked out well. It did, but, you know, hindsight is wonderful. So when I look back on, when I look way back on the path of my life, um, it, it has all worked out for me. And it, that's not to say that it'll, it'll work out for everybody, um, but, but I think that, that when opportunity presents itself, you need to be prepared. Um, and you need to be able to take the bull by the horns and just, you know, follow that. Well, there um, are going to be certain things that come up that speak to different passions in, in parts of who you are, right? And, yeah. and if you are uh, able, you know, you're in a, in a situation where you can follow that passion for a period of time, go for it. I mean, right. you know... I also think that, you know, I've been out of work for periods of time in my life and, and I, I felt miserable. I, I, I used to tell my dad, I understand how people felt um, during the depression because you, you so identify with your ability to work and you, you lose your sense of self. Mm-hmm. So I have no identity because I don't have a job and I'm not working. Um, but I think you have to, you know, you also have to touch bottom once or twice in order to swim back up um, and and it's not the, the end of the world because, you know, you will swim back up. Um, but it's, it's a, uh, it's, I don't, I know very few, you know, some of the guys in our business, the guys in our business probably have had a straight and clear path. Right. Uh, yeah. They, they were probably um, high school or college, at least in my industry, high school or college baseball players. Um, and then that's how they, um, that was, their entrance into baseball. Nowadays in my industry, we see more and more, um, uh, you know, programmers, analytics, um, analytics, 
um, mathematicians, um, that's now the almost the direct clear path into, into baseball. Thanks, Billy Bean. Yes. Well, you know, it's also <laughs> a very good thing for girls. It is. Because, it really is. Um, because that analytics is an extremely gender-blind um, uh, not prof- I don't want to say profession. It's an extremely gender-blind discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have um, women in our analytics department. Um, actually, uh, we have um, two women in New York. Um, we have some women down in our player development department. Um, and analytics was how they, how they came into the game. Um, and they're flourishing. So, you know, that's great, which is wonderful, which is yeah. a, a great thing. Yeah. When I talk about, um, careers and stuff, you know, one of the things that usually kind of stops everyone in their tracks, especially because of where I am now is that after law school, um, I was a licensed attorney waitressing for two years because I couldn't find a job yeah. after, after the recession hit. And it just shocks people. And they're like, but what, what did you do? I'm like, I don't know. I kind of started doing some legal work for friends and family <laughs> just yeah. to like do something. And then, you know, my first real job was as the first in-house counsel for this small life sciences company that I have no science background and I just kind of figured it out. But because of not having that job or not having a job right away, I was on Twitter like really early and that's how I met David Cohen. So really? Yeah. So, (laughs) so like six years, seven years after we first quote unquote meet through Twitter and we'd have phone calls and sent each other holiday cards and stuff like that. We just, we formed a relationship. And, um, when he had the opening here, I was one of five that he brought in for interviews. Oh, that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic story. Yeah. And it was our first time meeting in person was for my interview. Wow. So that's amazing. It's none of it is, I don't know, you taking that time and doing Shakespeare in the summer. Like that's something that people dream about doing. Right. And to be able to do it while at the time. And if we're giving people a, I don't know, a playbook for how to get to where we are may not be included. It, you know, it probably filled a part of you that, that needed to be filled. Yes. And, and, um, and I think that, uh, you know, for me, actually, I guess you, uh, you know, the theater was my first love. And I mean, I know I said, I hope, I hope to go back to my first love. Um, and it, and it also taught me a lot of things, um, and, and helped me in a lot of ways, um, inhabiting, you know, a different role. Um, and, and also, uh, I, I, I see if I had to, one, another thing that I would want students to, um, to really pay attention to is, is um, people are so afraid. We started out by talking about listening, yeah. and I find that people are so afraid to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, you know, and, and, and that's something that should be required in every high school and college and law school is making people more comfortable with, with speaking. And speaking in little groups, or you don't have to get up in, in front of 3,000 people, but just being able to speak at a conference table 
to articulate your ideas, because that's really all we have, is just being able to communicate. Um, and the other piece, where we started out with the listening, the other piece is, is being able to articulate ideas that are kind of true to yourself, something that, that, that you believe strongly about, um, even if it's just resolving a little problem. Um, but people need to find their voice. And, and I, I worry a lot that, um, you know, girls in high school, um, they, I worry about girls finding a voice and, um, and, and a voice that, that, that they feel comfortable with. Because it's, it's tough being, I was speaking to a friend of mine and his daughter is a teenager and, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm no longer a teenage girl and I'm glad I, I don't have a teenage girl. Um, because it's very tough being, it's tough being a teenager boy or girl, but, right. but, um, and I had a very happy, you know, I had a very happy family life, but still that kind of growing in, into, out of, out of your childhood heading towards, um, adulthood, very difficult time. And, and if you are, if, if you're uncertain about what you're going to do, um, it makes it doubly difficult or triply difficult. Um, and then also you're finding out kind of who you are and, and your place in the world. And for, for girls and women, that's a very tough thing, who you are and, and your place in the world. Right. Well, you had parents who really instilled in you that sense of having no fear. And even though we all go through that period of time, in particular in you know your middle school to high school, uh, years. So it doesn't really matter how great your parents are. You're still going to go through it. Um, yeah. I, I am, I can only imagine that that was at least helpful to, um, if. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, my parents, um, I, I'm very lucky. My parents just, uh, you know, their message to me was I, I, I was the only girl, um, with brothers and their message to me was there's, there's nothing that you can't do. Um, if you use your mind, I mean, that was the message to all of us, boys and girls and girl, <laughs> boys, right. boys and girl was that you can achieve anything if you use your mind. Um, so, uh, so that was, that was what we did. I mean, that's, that's how, that's how we rolled in the afterman household. <laughs> One of the <laughs> and, things, um, oh, oh, Sorry, go on. No, no, sorry, sorry. And that, and that really has um, uh, served me well. One of the things that I worry about, um, and I think it's a dual, a double-edged sword, is that how I say it? Yeah. Um, is social media. And the, the part that concerns me is the devices and social media and everything becoming textualized. And they're not being that actual face-to-face or ear-to-ear communication. And, right. and young women learning how to speak and project and hold themselves strong. But on the other hand, I do see it as a way for them to find their voices and yeah. to use it as a platform. And I do think that this generation coming up is seeing a lot of vocal women right now, which is pretty phenomenal. Yes. Yes. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, the social media, um, I'm not, I'm not on any social media, but not, not because I don't admire. I mean, 
I, I love the idea of social media. I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's fantastic. I, 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 but not for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, but I, so I, and I, I so, um, uh, you know, there's a lot that, that social media is the, you know, the purpose is to bring people together. Um, the unfortunate thing is it puts that little screen in between you. And the really unfortunate thing is that, um, the, the dark side of it, the dark mirror side of it is that, um, it, it washes away, it, it provides its anonymity and no responsibility. So you can, you can sit out there doing whatever you're doing and you, you don't take ownership or responsibility for what you're saying or doing or writing and you can be perfectly anonymous. Well, and um, it, I think it also takes away a, a layer of humanity from yeah. whoever the vitriol is being spat at, right? Because you're just typing it into the ether. Like there's not a real person there. You for like there's it's easy for people to forget that there's a real live living human being on the other side. Yes. And it's and it also is a you know it sometimes um on the on the non-vitriolic side, but just on the on the typing away and putting things out there, um you don't get to see your effect on the listener. And I think that's really important um for people to be able to have their um, as Brian called it, the spider senses, <laughs> for people to be able to see their effect on the listener, um, which we all hopefully do. You can start out a conversation and you can be talking to somebody. Um, and but just like talking on the phone is actually kind of difficult because I'm, I'm more used to uh, seeing somebody's face and seeing if, if what I'm saying is resonating with them. Um, and if it's not resonating with them, then you know, I have to try and think of another way to articulate it. Um, and with social media, you don't get that. Like you're, you're not, you're not going to be able to see um, what works and what doesn't work. And so for, for person to person social interaction, you don't have those, you're not developing those spider skills. <laughs> um, and that, that's, that's another thing that, that, you know, I, I, I worry about. It. I mean, everything has a positive and a negative side, and um, I just think that that there and there's a balance. Um, kids on social media should also have the same amount of personal interaction. Right. It's something that I've noticed um, a lot when I have some of these. Hey, I'm interested in your career calls with younger. Mm-hmm. The younger the person is, the more. Um, awkward it is and and it's going to be anyway because they're young and they're talking to someone who they want to hear about their career so they look up to it it, in a way right um so there's going to be a little uncomfortableness there but it does seem to be a little more difficult i think um and hopefully i don't know hopefully that regulates itself what they really should hear, what they really should hear is that you waitress for two years. Well, you and I, t- I tell been, them that. I mean, that's the thing. And it hasn't been a, a, an easy path. Yeah. That's, that's what they need to listen to. You know, we, we didn't um, bring fully formed out of the foam, you know, as, as um, women working in sports. You know, they, they're, it's not a, um, you can't anticipate that it'll be an easy and direct path. And, and if you, and, you know, if you, but if you, if you really 
if you really want something, then you figure out that way to to get it. And and with a lot of rejection and a lot of of um, you know times when you may question, do I really want to do this? Um, but you know, I think that that um, I I think stories end well. That's my, my <laughs> I believe the ending. Well, one of the questions that I ask a lot of our guests, and I do this for for that reason, is I ask about how they chose where they went to college. So you went to Cal Berkeley, and you're an art major. Art history, history of art. Art. Okay. So I was a history of art major. How did you pick um, that school? Uh, so I, I um, oh, wow, so. I, um, I grew up in San Francisco. Um, Cal Berkeley was right across the bay um, and a great school. Um, and I probably applied um, to most of the uh, several Cal campuses. I mean, the University of California is a fantastic system. It always has been, mm-hmm. even way back when, when I went to college. Um, and I probably selected Berkeley because it was, um, you know, a world away, um, but still close enough to my family, to the family home. Mm-hmm. Um, and history of art, um, I, I, it's funny because my older brother, who um, is now uh, has been quite successful in the um, movie and music business, he was a history of art major. And my younger and he's brother, he's on the music um, side, right? Yes. Yeah. And my younger brother, who um, worked um, in Facebook advertising, uh, he basically had a history of art major. So we, all three of us um, had history of art majors. And I think we, I, for me, um, I chose history of art because, um, uh, and I, I, my focus was um, ancient uh, Greek art. Mm-hmm. And that's because my dad was always interested. Uh, he's a frustrated archaeologist. <laughs> um, and, and I guess candidly, it also, um, allowed me to, um, pursue theater at Cal. So I spent most of my time, um, acting and, you know, we did, um, three plays, um, a year. You we were cast in three plays a year and then mm-hmm. summer stock, um, the semi-professional summer stock. So, um, history of art was a, was interesting and, and, and I loved the subject and it gave me the freedom to really um just to give me the freedom to act so i get so- but i also worked at the organic sandwich bar well <laughs> which by the way somehow <laughs> you know uh was the beginning of your career quote unquote in the organic world in, <laughs> yes my 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 roots my roots started at the lair, the, the, uh, it wasn't the lair of the bear. That was something else. The bear's lair. Sorry. The bear's lair organic sandwich bar. And people, um, if people listening might not know this, but you were, you were on the organic standards board. The, yes, the national organic standards board. Um, I was appointed by the, um, the secretary of agriculture under Clinton and the National Organic Standards Board. I had I, I had one of my many careers was I was um, the general counsel at the largest uh, grower of certified organic fruits and vegetables um, by acreage, I think, at the time in the world. Oh my um, gosh. And uh, and and 
um, the National Organic Standards Board, the, the law was passed in 1990, and the board was tasked with sort of giving um, the, giving the, the a, a not only the soul, but um, the, how it was going to be practically applied. So there were in, people from the, um, from the organic industry uh, that sat on the board, and we went, uh, you know, CFR by CFR, we went, we went paragraph by paragraph, and just um, once this once this law had been passed by Congress, you know, well, that's not the end of it. How is it? How are you actually going to practically apply it? So I think I was on the board for about a year, um, and there, I, I think I told you this, but the we had a lot of old time um, people who'd been in the organic industry for a few decades, and so the the motto on the board was, if you can't, if under this law you can create a certified organic Twinkie, yeah. then the law has failed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I was reading a few stories that that talked about this, and that made me laugh. I'm like, "Yep, that's, I know." That's I, right. I think I, I think now I, I I've said this also. I think now the organic industry has come a long way, and and so I think you actually can, with integrity, create a certified organic. Yeah, Twinkie. probably. I mean, I think the the Twinkie will actually be something else. Like it won't be Twinkie. It'll be you know like a gastro you know, restaurant, it's like something made yes. of foam. <laughs> yes. It won't be, it won't be what, what, uh, whatever what that we is all new in the past, whatever, <laughs> whatever ingredients went into the Twinkie. Although I was more, um, I don't think they even made them after I, I in high school, I was more, I enjoyed the raspberry cuckoo. Oh, okay. Which was a, a delightful pastry, um, which was dunked in probably the same Twinkie dough, but, dunked in like raspberry jam. No, it had a filling, I think also. Probably was a Twinkie dunked in raspberry jam and covered in coconut. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know it. Just imagine how healthy that was. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Coming out of a a machine. Um, (laughs) While I was doing research, I came upon a few little nuggets that I loved. And I think something that you and I have in common, besides our sometimes foul mouths is um, we don't always have the best timing. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Can can you share the, the the Jeter champagne story? Oh, oh. Um, (laughs) So um, we had a, uh, we had a, we had a fantastic season in 2009 as, as everybody knows. Um, or as everybody knows, you know, that's, 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 a, that's such an arrogant thing. Everybody in the world knows. We had a great <laughs> and we're the Yankees. We had a great season. Yeah, What's new? <laughs> um, well, as, as Yankee fans know, we had a great 2009 and we, and we, um, we, uh, kind of marched our way through the postseason. And, um, and, uh, in, I think our, um, in the ALDS, um, when we won, um, Derek, uh, either there was a there, you know, there was a you're supposed to spray each other with champagne, right? Spray each other or pour champagne over each other, and um, and Derek had either sprayed me or poured champagne over me, something like that. Um, and and by the way, memo to everybody: champagne does not come out of clothing. Oh, no dry cleaner in the world is going to get that champagne out of clothing. Just also, memo to everybody: also, got to be really careful when you're pouring champagne on women. Yes. Well, I didn't mind. I was 
drenched in it. Um, I did look a little bit like the sad clown because, you know, the mascara is going... <laughs> waterproof mascara is not waterproof when, you know, you're doused with champagne. But um, I'm but just thinking more the I, colors that, like, could be bad for champagne. Like, make sure she's not wearing white. Oh, yeah. Well, see, this is the other thing. When you dress for the role, um, you have to anticipate uh, whether or not there's going to be a, you know, a champagne shower um, after the game. So, yeah, no wearing white. And also why black is so very good to wear. Black is always, Renoir said, the queen of colors. (laughs) So, yes, black is always good to wear. (laughs) Um, But anyway, I I got him back in the middle of his um, on, uh, he was doing an interview. And I just uh, took a bottle and uh, pulled his jersey at the neck and just poured it right down his back. <laughs> and the interviewer goes, Jane Asterman! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a national television interrupting with, <laughs> with acting like a goofball and just, you know, doing the old champagne down the back thing. But it was... You know, it, it was a it was a fantastic season. It was a really exciting time. I think it, you know. I think having those not so good timing moments are actually really great because they can often show a side of your personality that people don't normally get to see, right? Or well, I think also um, you you know there are there are times when your moment when your your timing is not good, but it's it's it's. Uh, um, you know, you think to yourself, should I do that? Then you think, you know what? Yeah, of course I'm going to do that. Yeah. Um, and Derek didn't mind. I mean, but but it was, yeah, it was. Um, these stories, you know, it's, it's funny because they were, uh, there is a kind of a, you know, I really do think there's, uh, there's a faith, hope, and magic with a, with a team. Um, and, and there really is a magic in baseball, you know, that there's, Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason as to why one team over another, and and I think um, when players are when there's a you know there's a there's a, uh, a chemistry um, and that team you know just knew just knew sort of that that we were going to go all the way, and I think um, it's it's wonderful to be around. It's wonderful to be around um, people who are um, just even with all the stress enjoying themselves you know, having the time of their lives. That's, that's always an infectious and wonderful thing to be around. Sometimes, um, you know, when we go through the ups and downs of a season, it can be, it, you know, it's really hard to not get caught up in what happens, you know, on the field, right? And so if mm-hmm. you have like a bad day and you're one of those people who, um you've experienced things in your life that have made you kind of have a different perspective sometimes. And, um, your GM every once in a while has to tell you that, um, there's no levity in losing. (laughs) Well, not every, he only had to tell me once. Only had to tell me once. Only once. Yeah. No, then I, then I got the message. Um, yes, there was to be, um, (laughs) we had, uh, uh, we were um, we just lost a really crucial game in in Boston. I think it was a postseason, and um, and uh, I, we were on the on the bus from Fenway going back to the hotel. I was speaking with um, um, uh, Brian's then wife, um, Mary Cashman, and and we were 
sort of talking in between the, the, you know, they were in front of me and we were kind of whispering in between the seats. Um, and either one or the other of us just kind of laughed just a little bit, just a little bit. And Brian just uh, pissed at us. There's no levity after a loss. No levity on the bus after a loss. <laughs> so, um, which, you know, a lot changes in baseball because, uh, and once again, when you look to, you sort of look to the veterans, to, everybody looks to the veterans yeah. to determine how things are done. And um, I've, you know, I've been on some very winning teams and I've been parts of really terrible losses. And, and uh, I think also that has changed in baseball. So I, after a, a terrible loss, um, you know, some of the veterans will be able to, uh, you know, crack a smile or say something. I think there, maybe there's more balance in baseball now. Oh, that's maybe good. people understand that, that um, you know, there are things going on out there in the world and, and it really is, um, you know, it's just a game. It's not life and death. I, um, I think it's, it's hard to have any balance in sports, no matter what aspect you're, ha- you're talking about, right? When it's yeah. work-life balance, whether it's, um, you know, trying to remain balanced between the wins and losses. Um, I think whenever you can find that little special moment where things are all even, <laughs> I think you have to yeah. enjoy it. Yes, and I, I think we, um, I, I noticed, the, uh, for me, an alarming alarming thing when people ask, um, uh, you know, hey, how are you? And instead of saying, you know, or fine or not fine or whatever you say, the first thing out of our mouth is always like, well, you know, feeling great. We, you know, we team's doing really well or, or how are you? Well, you know, we just lost last night, not feeling very good. I mean, seriously, like, it's not, they're not really asking where are the Yankees in the standings. They're asking, how are you? Right. you know, I'm your friend. I'm asking you, how are you? Not not wins and losses. And it's hard not to be completely consumed by it. Um, and you're right. You have to get a balance. I think it's, um, you know, balance is difficult. doesn't matter what your gender is. Balance is very difficult in everything we do, particularly in this day and age. You know, in the 21st century, I don't think we're largely a very balanced, well, we're definitely not a balanced world. We're definitely not a balanced country. Um, and, <laughs> no, we're very um, off balance right now. We're very off balance. We're very not where we were. We're very, we're very much not a country that I recognize. I, I read a, um, I don't know if you saw. Um, Our country needs the, to take some probiotics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do a colonic cleanse. Yeah, um, maybe oh, go to sorry, yoga no, a couple days like, a week. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like that horrible campaign slogan, but I don't know if you oh, read the, um, um, the um, woman who um, uh, won, was at the Olympics and won a medal, the American um, who won a medal in fencing, um, the Muslim young woman, Muslim woman. Who, yeah. um, and she wrote a very moving um, and um, uh, piece um, that was on CNN today. Um, oh. And I thought it was beautifully written and said so many things that, that I've wanted to say. And, and um, you know, she spoke about her, her um, love of this country and how she just doesn't recognize it anymore. And then it was also a rallying cry for people to remember what this country um, should stand for, could stand for, did stand for, and hopefully will stand for. Anyway, it's worth a read because it was 
really very moving and 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 you know written by somebody who who knows what she's talking about sure so anyway i highly recommend it i will um link to it when we end up posting all this um and i'll read it tonight myself so i didn't oh good i haven't seen it um but I would love to. One thing I know that helps me with balance, and I was delighted to see that this is something I, you notice a theme of like me being excited about things we have in common because, oh my God, we should be best friends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Also, it's kind of like, oh good, I'm doing the right thing. Um, Oh, you're always doing the right thing. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, And I've talked about this so much on the podcast. I think my listeners must think I'm insane but um, is sleep and how important yes. sleep is. Yep. Sleep is, uh, sleep is the number. I tell, I, I tell my nephews this all the time. They're in their 20s, and I, I, I tell them that like, the number one thing you can do for yourself is sleep. When I was a little girl, all the way little girl, teenager, I, I, always, <clears throat> I always needed a lot of sleep. Um, as I've gotten older, Sleep eludes me just a little bit, um, but I, uh, I I just recently somebody just recently turned me on to um, some aromatherapy oils that's mm. supposed to. This one is a stress one, and um, and so now I'm sort of you know breathing deeply this aromatherapy oil, um, but I think it's the it, there's no greater thing you do for your health physically or mentally than sleep. Yeah. And, you know, I keep studying my dad, but my dad always said that, you know, sleep is where, is the time when our unconscious processes everything throughout the day. Um, and I read an article recently where um, we are subject to millions of stimuli throughout the day in our waking hours. And um, what sleep does for us is it's our, our minds deleting files. So mm. our minds spend our sleeping time deleting um, things that we've um, seen, heard, smelled, tasted that aren't relevant. So it just, you know, keeps delete, 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 like don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. And because if we, if we had to store every, everything that we're, uh, every stimuli that we have during the day, um, I think we, I think our, well, I mean, that's sci-fi brains would explode. No, our brains wouldn't explode, but it's just an, it's a necessary, I think you would be on sort of overload. But yes, you and I, if you're a sleeper, oh, I, I salute you. I ever since I, I was that kid that like they had to drag out of bed and it's a struggle every morning for me still. But I always had trouble falling asleep. Um, I, I could sleep forever, but it was getting to sleep. That was always really difficult. And so I've made it a priority um, because I know, I kind of know where my, where I do better and where I don't do well on number of hours. So I always try and make sleep a priority and have like a little, you know, uh, ritual or routine that I go through and I have white noise and I do in my head, I do gratitude ABCs and that's oh. kind of my way. I learned this from my therapist actually, um, which I'm also this is you and I's first time talking, but my listeners um, are used to hearing me talk about therapy and, and all that. Therapy is the, is the most wonderful. Uh, if, I mean, I 
obviously from you know what my who my dad was, but um, I I've had very successful therapy in my life, so I'm mm-hmm. a big a big supporter of therapy. What are gratitude ABCs? So gratitude ABCs are, I guess you're if you ever have that like you can't you have like monkey mind when you're trying to go to sleep, and it's like you know the freaking lyrics of a song that you hadn't thought about in 20 years or whatever it is. So, but if you think and focus too much on something or like on not thinking, it's, you know, you still can't fall asleep. So gratitude ABCs are as you're lying there, um, ready to go, you know, your lights are out. You're literally like about to go to sleep in your mind. Um, it's like counting sheep. You do the alphabet, but for each uh-huh. letter, you think of something that you're truly grateful for. And it can be something as simple as A is for air, B is for bacon, like whatever it is. I love that. And And, two things I love, air and bacon. Yeah. And I mean, I, it was the first thing that I've learned to do that really can put me out. And it just, it focuses you just enough, but it's also light enough that it doesn't overstimulate. But it's also a wonderful way to, to drift off to sleep in right. a positive way rather than a, a negative way. Right. And then, you know, whenever, if, if you have any sort of gratitude practice, whether it's, you know, journaling or whatever it is, it, um, it sets your default to a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone like me who um, has struggled with depression and anxiety, it, it just kind of, you know, it, it, it puts your level at a little bit higher than it would normally be for whatever reason. Um, and so that's something I do every night. I think that's wonderful. I think that's wonderful. I'm going to have that when you have monkey brain. Yeah. I, next time I have monkey brain, I'm going to, I'm going to try that. I, I, I mean, I, I'm always a, um, you had said it's hard for you to get out of bed in the morning. I, uh, so I was always an early to bed or early to rise. Mm. Um, and my, mornings, I, I love getting up very early in the morning. I think my most productive time is, is the morning. Now, this can be somewhat problematic if you don't get home until after midnight after a game. Right. And then, you know, I generally try and wake up around six. That's not that. For those of us, you and I who love sleep, um, you know, six hours of sleep is not, not good. That's a, that's a big <laughs> grumpalicious lady in front of you the next day that is and 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 you know you can try and make it up on a on a you know when we have a day game but it's really once again balance you gotta try and i guess figure out the, the balance but yeah as long as you get enough sleep i feel like uh what is i feel like some grandma's long as you get enough sleep and you eat a stuffed cabbage every day but you know what's some stuffed cabbage <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's amazing though, is, is how many people, um, talk about how important sleep is. I mean, you're probably the, I don't know, 41st, 42nd, depending on when this posts guest. And so many have talked about how important sleep is to them. And, um, you know, I do think for me, it just, when I get however many hours my body happens to need that day. So I'm fortunate enough, like one of the good things about being in your late thirties and single and childless is you can do whatever the hell you want. And so I sleep a lot (laughs) because, because I just let, you know, 
if my body needs it, my body needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I have started running again, it's more important that I do that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it is really literally the drinking lots of water and, and sleeping. That's really the, um, you know, people don't recognize the value of sleep. There's a, there's a novelist. I can't remember the, this came out my year of, I mean, it's not my year of sleeping. It has a, um, I think a David portrait on the cover, but it's a woman who, she wrote a novel uh, that came out, I think this month, um, about uh, a woman who just decides that she's pretty much going to like spend a year in her sleeping hours, very little waking hours. Um, which sounds weird. It's a weird concept. Or weird sounds concept, delightful but... to me. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I... But I think she uses chemicals to do so. And that's, you know. Sure. Yeah. I will say that, like, there are, I, I have usually one insomniatic night a month. And so, and and I can pretty much always pinpoint when it's going to be. And oh, the, really? Yeah, it's hormonal. Mm, so yeah. it's pretty, like, I when it happens, I know why it's happening. Um, so the next day, um, I will get through work as best I can and I will try and move around things that I, that I have to do the next day because I literally will only have had four hours of sleep probably. Um, so I'll, I'll, I will build that day. Um, I'll move things to the next day that require too much brain power and I literally will be in sleep in bed by seven o'clock. Oh, I know. I was talking with a, um, a male colleague of mine and we, after a, like a 10 day homestand and we were talking about how, um, that night, you know, it was a day game. And then that night that, um, um, you know, we were both, uh, yeah, pretty much, you know, in bed head hits seven thirty. Yeah. you know, seven o'clock or seven thirty, Um, and no shame to it. None. No shame. To it. Oh, I'll tell people. Uh, People are like, oh, what are, you, what are you doing tonight? It'll be like a Friday. I'm like, I'm going to bed at 7, and it's going to be yeah, glorious. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like. I'm looking forward to it. My cat is going to be really confused, and it'll be fine. <laughs> like, it's all good. It's all I, good. Yeah. I really need to get, like, a mattress sponsor for this podcast. You know, yes, how much should. I talk about sleep. There's got to be. Listen, the sleep industry is, uh, well, I mean. That all the box brands, I know. Yeah, it sounds a little cynical, but sleep is, uh, you know, it's it sleep is something that in the last few years has been very much emphasized for professional athletes. Yeah. So um, the and for uh, baseball players, because we travel all over the country and go into 22 different time zones and play, you know, one game a day. That's the figuring out how to get your sleep balanced and and, you know, there are all kinds of things that that are suggested that, um, you know, even some teams, I think, travel with a special light, oh. um, supposed to <laughs> encourage sleep. Okay. So it, I, I'm not sure, you know, it may not be a baseball team, um, because loading and unloading all those lights are yeah. problematic. It might be a football team that travels with this special light and goes into all the players' hotel rooms. And, hmm. you know, it's, we, we had, um, uh, mattress toppers from a, fantastic um, company in Japan. Um, they're specially made and they, uh, number one, they lower your core temperature by a few degrees, which is hugely significant. Right. And they also um, 
the other thing about sleep, for those of us, for people like you and me who love sleep, um, apparently when you turn over in your sleep, um, it slightly wakes you up because in most mattresses, the you're exerting too much energy. Yeah. So with these mattress toppers, it's supposed to kind of limit your energy so you're not waking yourself up by turning over. Oh, you should see my Fitbit stats and all the little red lines from when I move around in my sleep. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. Um, it is probably a good thing that I'm single um, because <laughs> it, it, it is shocking. Every time I, I look at it, I'm like, I don't understand. <laughs> What am I doing in my sleep? Um, what um, other, aside from sleep, what other things do you do by way of self-care? Um, I certainly, um, if I'm, uh, for my own grocery shopping, I only um, uh eat um, certified organic fruits and vegetables. That's, for me, a huge thing. Um, and I try and eat um, a very healthy diet. I think that's also very important. And, um, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables. That's the most important thing. Um, I, I would figure, you know, the body's like a machine. You've got to keep the machine going for as long as possible. <laughs> Got to give it the best shot. Drink lots of water. Um, and, and mind care also. Um, I don't read any books on sports or the sports business. I only read books that have nothing to do with sports. Because <laughs> I think, um, you know, your mind needs time to rest. Um, and it can't focus on one thing all the time. So um, I, and when I watch, I mean, I, I watch uh, all of our games. Um, I have it on now on mute because <laughs> um, I have to watch every single game. But when there's not, um, you know, a game on, I'm I'm not going to watch anything having to do with with what I do for work because I think there has to be you you have to have an identity separate from your work, and you have to have something that you're interested in separate from your work, or at least for me. So for my self-care, um, you know, I do go back to, um, to my roots, and I, um, I, I read a lot of uh, history. I watch a lot of history on television, and um, I try and read a lot of um, fiction and nonfiction. Um, but I think that what I try and do for myself, I think what I do most for my self-care is, is try and keep my horizons um, very broad and don't let the, you know, my, my, you almost feel like the walls are closing in if you're only all about the job. Sure. You know, I, I relate to so much of that. People will be like, oh my God, do you watch, do you watch, um, are you just watching football all the time? Are you, you know, college football or are you and sports? You must always be watching sports. I'm like, unless it's one of our games and there are only 20 of those a year, you know, unless we go into the postseason. Uh, no, I might, I might watch like if something interesting, if there's a storyline that's interesting or if I'm with out with friends or something and there's a game on and I do love me some Tampa Bay lightning hockey. Um, Oh yes. (laughs) Yeah. 
and you know, and of course, if the Sox are around, I might go to a game. Um, but good for you. They're your hometown team. Yeah. But otherwise like college football has no interest to me. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts. We didn't have it. It wasn't a thing. Still not a thing in my head. I don't care what all these crazy Florida people think. Um, (laughs) and I, I do a lot of the same thing. I, I do. It's almost like a distancing from the day job. And I find that I, I have to do that as well because there's, there's always just going to be work. Right. And there, it'll never go away. And if I don't set those boundaries, then I feel like that's all I would be and do. So oh, you'll find yourself swallowed up by it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love my job. I love what I do. I love the people that I work with. Um, it's a, you know, it's a fantastic life, but you, you do have to, you know, there's, 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 there's actually, you know, there's life and then there's your job life. And, and, um, you know, people may think, well, oh my God, you know, I would spend my entire life on, on everything having to do with, um, with baseball. But I, I think you, you're better, you, if you, you're better at your job if you do something else when you're not at your job. Um, because I think, I really do think that, that your, your mind gets fatigued mm-hmm. on only one thing. So you just have to kind of recharge your batteries away from the ballpark so that when you get to the ballpark, it's, you know, a whole new ball game. Right. It's, you know, you can see it with, with fresh eyes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think particularly for lawyers or anyone who's dealing with documents and, and being really, you know, I don't know, having to use a lot of brain power, yeah, I guess it, it, it can, you literally start feeling the fatigue in your brain. And you can become dangerous um, and not being able to provide um, the right advice or counsel to your clients. And so you have to you have to know when that's about to happen and be like, I'm done for the day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's hard. Yeah, you look, you you have to recognize your your limits or recognize. you know, I mean, everybody has to recognize when they're most productive and shut it down when they're just not being as productive as they should be. Um, because otherwise, you're just doing a disservice to your organization. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that you get asked all the time. I already know your answer, but my listeners are going to want to hear it. Do you want to be the first GM and first female GM in Major League Baseball? Uh, no. <laughs> and um, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, I guess the, I have a lot of answers to that. Um, <laughs> and, and they're all, and they all are, um, true. So, um, my, my first answer is, uh, you know, for 17 years I've, I've been, um, uh, the assistant GM at the, at the Yankees and, and um, and I've had um, you know tremendous joy from that. We have our huge highs, our huge lows, um, but I work in an amazing organization and um, and with incredible people. And and I work for you know in my view the best general manager in sports. And I don't know where you go from there. Um, 
and I, I like being a part of the collaborative effort that we have at the Yankees. Um, that's one side of it. Uh, the other side of it is I am determined to do, um, you know, that I'm going to have uh, yet another chapter in my life. Um, so I'm, this is not going to be my last job or my last profession. So I feel that life is kind of a banquet. And if you're fortunate enough to have an education, um, then you can kind of, you should do as much as you can because you, you only get one shot. Um, and, and the third thing is I do, I'm, I'm, I am going to, you know, return to the theater, but not, not in competitive theater. You know, I, I hope to, uh, to just, you know, do little community theater where the orthodontist is King Lear, you know, and maybe the librarian is the fool and, you know, just, just for the joy of it, just for the fun of it. So those are, those are my reasons. Um, I certainly would like to, uh, uh, you know, I certainly would like to see the first general. I hope I've met the first female general manager in baseball. Um, uh, I'm not sure that I've met her yet, but uh, I would surely like to shake her hand. Would your community theater happen to be located near your Napa house? Sonoma. Sonoma. Oh, yeah. God, how dare I? <laughs> I know better well, than that. All right. Yes. Yes. I, I, uh, I was lucky enough to, um, I bought a house in Sonoma. My family is there now. Um, uh, my mother's 91, my, my younger brother and his, um, and his wife and their eight year old, my older brother, um, and his family, they still live in Southern California, but we're all Californians. And, you know, I miss my, I miss my home state. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I, I dream about returning to, to California. It sounds lovely, and you do realize that I will be visiting. Absolutely, hundred. You absolutely must. <laughs> now you know it's funny because I, I lived in New York from eighty to eighty five, and now I've been here seventeen years, and um, and I probably spent you know, and with the two months in uh, in Florida um, for spring training, um, I, I probably spent maybe more time. Um, Away? No, maybe not. I'm. I am that old that I haven't spent more time away from California than. Um, but uh, and and I do love New York. I loved New York when I was in my twenties, and I love New York um, for the last seventeen years. And I, I'm sixty-one, so you know it's been when you when you get an opportunity to live in New York at different times in your life and you experience it differently. I always used to say that that you know that's another thing that should be a part of a college education is everybody should have to. Not have to. That that makes it sound onerous. But everybody should, as part of their education, spend some time in in New York City. The really important question about living in New York City is: Do you have a set reservation at Rayos? Well, I don't, but I know somebody who does. <laughs> That's really the important part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is absolutely, just as good. I have. I was a, devastated that my favorite. Um, local Italian restaurant that I've been going to. My nephews grew up there. Um, whenever they'd come visit me, that I just all of a sudden it closed its doors. Oh no! I know. I was devastated, but it it reopened. Same name. They redid it. Different owner. It's you know not the same. But not you know, same. time marches on. Yeah, my um, a former well, a good friend of mine. He was a former colleague at my organization, and. Uh, 
he has he he now lives in Vegas and I don't think he's given up his reservations yet. <laughs> he shouldn't. No, he loves he it there. Yeah, absolutely loves to, it. Once you have that table, you cannot that's something that, that you have to sort of pass down through generations. Yeah. Um, to kind of close this out, since you're not on social media and so people can't follow you there, where where could people look to 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 see what the MLB is doing with the diversity pipeline? Um, so Major League Baseball does, I mean, is on several social media platforms. Um, and the Office of the Commissioner, I think, um, does probably um, speak about the um, diversity pipeline. This year, um, uh, there are uh, the the first class of fellows. So it's the diversity fellow. Um, I think about 26 teams, the Yankees being one of them, participated. Um, and it's an 18-month program where um, where a diverse or gender-diverse um, candidate was selected amongst um, a lot of people who applied. And they have an 18-month rotating through all of the baseball operations departments. So they will be oh, exposed great. to everything in a baseball operations department. Um, <coughs> and, and some people actually, um, you know, had worked maybe as interns or had worked in, in maybe baseball briefly, but they never were, they were never exposed to every part of the operation. So that's the, the first classes this year. And I, I don't think um, Major League Baseball is hiding its light under a bushel. I think they, they do speak about um, the effort um, that baseball is making. Um, okay. And so I think, I think on the baseball social media platform. And I'll try and find a link to something more substantive um, so that people can kind of look into it and maybe apply in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think they, uh, you know, I, 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 the, pro, the hope is that the program grows year by year and there will be more and more candidates. Um, and so, uh, I think it's, I also think that, that people need to, people need to know that, that, um, jobs are available in sports. If you are, even if you don't think that, even if you think you're a non-traditional candidate, there are jobs in sports. It's not, front offices are not all ex-ball players. I think that's really important too. I also, anytime anybody says, should I apply for this? My response is, what would a mediocre white man do? <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to steal that. Yeah. And, and the answer is apply. I'm like, there you go. Just apply. Like, you never know what could come from it. Absolutely. You need to have their confidence. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And, um, and uh, even though I'm not on social media, I am going to, you know, I'm going to, maybe I'll, you know, have somebody else. I feel like somebody's granny. I'll have one of those young people, you know, set it up so I can follow you. Um, <laughs> get a good night's sleep. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you so, so, so much to Jean for taking the time to chat with me and to be on the pod. I, I couldn't stop smiling after that interview and, you know, listening to it again, um, before we posted this just kind of got me just so happy. Um, I feel a kinship with her and I'm very much looking forward to seeing her soon. Thank you again to all of you for listening. And as a reminder to celebrate our birthday with us, reach out on social media at LTPF pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to tell us what episode has been your favorite so far and why, and then head over to your podcatcher. You know, that little thing that you're listening to the the podcast on that app, go to that app and rate and review the podcast. Um, That would be an amazing gift for us while you're at it. If you haven't subscribed, make sure you check out Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, RadioInfluence.com, LTPFPod.com, and um, subscribe. And uh, as usual, thanks to my guys, Jerry and Jason at Radio Influence. This past year has been insane, and my life is crazy, and you guys give me the... Um, support and the patience that I often need. So I'm so happy that you're in my life and thank you so much for that. And now um, I'm going to let y'all go for the week. I'm going to go eat some cupcakes, I'm sure, (laughs) because that's what I do when I celebrate. And I'll be back next week. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. It's no surprise to anybody who's listened to the show before, sleep. And quality sleep is the key. But it's not as easy as it sounds. As a matter of fact, the majority of us walking around, driving and working are sleep deprived. How much sleep do you need? How do you get into good sleep practices? Well, we always say go to the pros. And one of the very best in the world is Dr. Charles Samuels, the medical director for the Center of Sleep and Human Performance. Dr. Samuels, thanks for joining us today. There's a strong relationship between mental illness, in in particular anxiety disorder, depression, PTSD, and sleep. And it's bi-directional. So if you have an individual who is not predisposed to mental illness but is chronically sleep-deprived, they can, they're at much higher risk for developing mental illness over time. This is well well established, well studied. Mm-hmm. The reverse is true. Those people that actually do have predisposition to mood disorder and anxiety, those the management of those disorders is made more difficult with poor sleep. So focusing on the sleep or either um, um, good control of the mental illness or prevention of future episodes is is very critical. Crush Performance with the Crusher Jeff Crushell can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.